I work a lot with Gen Z and now my mentors are probably my children and, and they seem to think a lot clearer than our generation does on what a career is, what is life, value, balances. I'm thinking, wow, I, I was skewed. The only way I kept scores was job, career, making money. That's a terrible way to run life. <laughs> This is the Indianness Podcast, stories of success from leaders and change makers of Indian origin. Why have Indians achieved success across so many different disciplines around the globe? I have no idea, but let's find out together because every story is unique. I'm very excited to have Bask Iyer with us today. He's the CEO of Bask Mind, which is a digital transformation advisory. He has been at C-level roles for companies like Honeywell, Dell, and VMware. He advises companies and also serves on for-profit and non-profit boards. I invited him on this show as he has a unique insight into the leadership journey. Welcome, Bask. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on our podcast. Thank you, Sanjay. It's a pleasure to be here. Great, Bask. So as we say in this podcast to get to the end, you need to go to the beginning. Not that your end is here, but to get to this moment, you have to go to the beginning. So let's go to the very, very beginning, Bas. Can you take our viewers as to where were you born and tell us about your parents, about grandparents and other people who influenced you around that time? I was born in Chennai, was Madras at that time, and pretty much did my schooling in my early high school in Chennai. But my parents, so they were both from villages deep down south. So they were from small villages about 200 miles south of Chennai, both mom and dad. And so we spent a lot of time in our, my ancestral village in deep south. So most of my learnings, values, the street smart probably came out of Chennai, but most of the values come out of the deep south from the times I spent on the farm or in with my ancestors, if you will. My father was a farmer turned businessman. He came to Chennai mainly to start a business on his own. He was an entrepreneur, very, very successful, but a farmer at heart, and he just happened to be very successful in business. So he came there to have a better life for us, and he sold appliances, refrigerators, air conditioners, and he used to go source in way in northern India, in Amritsar, bring them back, and then sell them all over South India. So I spent a quite a bit of my formative age on the business side with my dad. I've gone door to door selling from when I was 15, 14, after school, between schools. And I also started a branch for him. He wanted me to get into the business. I started a branch for him in Bangalore a long time back. And I was 17, 18 and did, just wanted to be in a cool place, in a good place, in a cool place. And, and Bangalore at that time, it was a resort. It was a fabulous place to go. So, so I sold refrigerators and air conditioners in the heart of Bangalore and did not have the foresight to imagine what Bangalore would turn out to be. No, it, it was a sleepy town nobody knew about. And the landlord that I rented the space from treated me like a son, and he was dying for me to buy the house, buy the place. I looked at him and said, who the hell would buy a property in Bangalore? It makes no sense. It's the middle of nowhere. So to cut the story short, sometimes opportunities get thrown into you. So had I bought that property, then I probably didn't have to work the rest of my life. But... <laughs> Who knew? No, but Bask, let's just go back a little bit. So were you born in Chennai or were you born in the village? I was born in Chennai. Chennai is home, but somehow in my heart, I feel like every learning I've had 
was from the village is how I feel. My friends would know and say, you're a Chennai boy, you grew up there, went to school there. But all my formative time lessons to learn, I feel like in hindsight, I look and say I got it a lot from the farm, watching my grandfather and my father in the farm. And grandfather was a farmer, right? Yeah, grandfather was a farmer as well. It was uh, funny that he was nominated to be the village headman. And at those days, there was no election. The wise man got elected to, or nominated to be the headman. He was one of those people that people liked him because staying in the village, he was extremely educated. He would know poetry about history, about Sumerians and uh, Shakespeare in the village, which is surprising. Painfully learned English, so he was very proud of that. And he was on board of a few banks there. So he was like a Renaissance man, but from a village and farming. So people respected him and, and it was almost like judge jury at that time. So if he told the villagers, please go elect this person, they'll all go vote for him. So one lesson learned is this, I call it either humble leadership or leadership by practice, or, or I call it the leadership style of Moses, right? You lead from the front. <laughs> And rather than command and control or by giving it to you. Again, in hindsight, I think I learned a lot from him. And most of my ambitions and dreams probably fueled by some of the stories he told me. And you saw a lot of people coming to the house when he was there, coming to listen to him, etc. And you would observe all of that? Yeah. So I'll give you a case. It, it'll be anything like in the villages, it's changed now perhaps, but... People would come and say, so-and-so is encroaching on my property. There's no lawyers, there's nobody. And they would go to the village headman and say, can you help me mediate? Right. So, so he has to look at the facts and data and also knows the character of people and the judgment will be given. It is not the law, but people just follow it. Not because he was a thug and he had, he had nobody, but he just was a word of so-and-so. So he would say, your property ends here, so-and-so's property begins there. So that would be one. Or the next door village, somebody would have an encounter with a girl in the next village and, and the whole village would come to hit him, beat him up. And so this case would come to my grandfather and my grandfather would, uh, would pass some judgment on this boy, which is harsh, but kinder than what he would get had if you let the village loose. So it was strange that those things happen in a democracy where because people don't want to go talk to the police or the court or whatever. So I, I watched it and I was thinking, why do they respect you? You don't have any authority. You're not the elected leader. You don't have any bodyguards. You don't have much money. Why do they respect you? And that was always curious for me. And he was nominated for life. So he would keep saying, I don't want to do it next year. And people would insist. I don't know if leaders like that exist. So why was he successful at doing that? Why? What do you think? I think number one was fair. He would, even if it comes to our own things at home and so on, he was extremely fair. That was one. It was very strict, but fair. So I think integrity, people saw integrity and fairness with him. And he was also, for the village, he was the most educated or well-rounded person there is. And he has the, had the capacity to go to the, the big offices and, and get the streetlights for them or get the telephone. But, you, you know, we got the first streetlight in the 60s is when we got this. Until then, we didn't have lights in the village. So he was the one who was able to go and get lights allocated for the places or get the municipal to come and clean the river. And people were in awe that they didn't know how to go and get all those things done. So I think that's probably, he could get a lot of things done and was a pretty fair and high integrity person. And also he didn't see any class differences. I mean, in, in India, the villages have a lot of class differences, either rich, poor or caste based. 
And he had none of those hangups. So, and, and religion too. It was not secular. So who would you go if you have a religious issue? And who would you go talk to who you think is fair? So I think that's probably in reflection. People said, it's a good man. He will speak the truth and it'll be fair. It may not be the answer you'd like to hear, but it'll be fair. So very strong leadership qualities. And you imbibe, without realizing it, you imbibed or observed a lot of them, Rask? Yeah, I think on reflection, I get it, right? This is one good lesson for us. Is I feel like I've never taught my children anything. But hopefully they've seen the way we live and learn a few things. So I don't think he formally taught me leadership and tenets of leadership or a Harvard book or anything like that. But you watch it from childhood and say, how does this work? Why do you get this inner power? Why do people listen to you? Right. So, so you learn a lot and say, oh, okay, there are still elements that people want to f- some fairness, somebody to be respectful. And so I'm a little optimistic because that in my lifetime, I've seen that work. So I still feel like, oh, that should definitely work even now, even though times have changed. Yeah. No, that's uh, great. So he was ethical. He was well versed in the world affairs and obviously could get things done with the local government. And you used to go there, what, every summer? I summer, every time I got a break, sometimes even long weekends, any holidays, we went there. So my dad was actively farming there. So the minute he finished his business, he would drive his car, take the train, whatever. And that was our vacation, if you will, to go to the village. So I spent quite a bit of time. Summer is almost all summer I was there as well. Now, dad was in appliances, which is pretty interesting in those days. We didn't have the Best Buy as well. Maybe there was Vijay sales and all that other stuff. But he was really ahead of his time in basically buying appliances from around the country and selling it in Chennai and other places. Yeah, all over Tamil Nadu and Karnataka, all South India. There was no international brands. There was Alvin from Hyderabad. And then there was some Kelvin, General Leonard, Kelvinator. Those are the only brands. Blue Star Wolters was there perhaps on air condition and really not great brands, but really all kinds of issues, service issues and problems, quality issues. And on the, on the blenders, then he started selling blenders, of course, called Yelko. It doesn't exist. Sumit. Sumit, yeah. That was the big one. Big one. What I'm surprised is a lot of the big names, some of the ones you mentioned, but there are other people who are even bigger retailers even now, have reached out to me as recent as a month ago and said, I learned from your dad. Your dad was my mentor. And these are big guys, big retailers. So they had called me and my dad has passed about uh, three, four years ago. And they had found out about it late. And, and they wanted to talk to me in the US because they felt like, hey, I had to wait in the cabin to see your dad and learn about how to do this business and how to do installments and how to do service. So at that time, it was really early. And he was a consummate salesperson. I remember him. I described him as Facebook before Facebook, right? So I, I think I've told you that before. Is anybody from anywhere in the world, he'll talk for a few minutes and say, where are you from? And, and then he will find an aunt or an uncle or somebody that he knows or a ground that he has gone to or a shop he has shop. And he will say something, oh, in, uh, you're in New Jersey. I have, I've been to, how about this Friendly's? Do you like ice cream for Friendly's? And people immediately feel close, right? They just said, oh my God, are you these close? So I saw that from him as, and he didn't like business, which is funny. He didn't, he, he really liked the farming, hard work and less talk was his values, but he could turn it on. When, when it came to business and he was a, a fabulous business guy. There's still people who said, I bought a fridge from your dad and it was the best experience, et cetera, right? 
So he didn't like business, but he was great. And in our conversation before, you told me he went to Punjab and other places. For people who don't know, this gentleman is walking into Punjab and other places, probably not knowing a word of that language and buying appliances. That's That was quite a salesperson and great communicator, I would say. Yeah, I don't know how. He didn't know a word of Hindi. He didn't know a word of Punjabi. Of course, Hindi doesn't work in those places either. So he would talk like he knows Hindi and Punjabi. He's semi-English, broken English and other languages. And somehow people got him. He had huge conversations. He, he got invited to their homes. He met their wives and so on. And I told him, what will you talk to her? I don't understand. And And so... But he could drink, like I told you before. That's the universal language, man. <laughs> he was definitely a party animal when it's required to do it. I think people loved having him. And again, they liked having, they don't know, the, the guys from Punjab, the places you described, don't know anything about South India. To them, anything south, five miles south of them is really deep south. <laughs> right. So for them to come, it's a strange country. They are more comfortable going to even Iran or Iraq than coming into sometimes to Chennai or places so they needed an ambassador, a trustworthy person for them to sell their goods to all over South India. And it's not just Chennai, you have to go to all the different states. And I remember going in a car, we stop every 10 miles, go to an appliance dealer, sell them wholesale, then go to another 10 miles, stop. And so we just keep driving all over and going door to door. And everybody, he'll know somebody in that village or in that town or whatever. And I was watching all this and said, Wow, it's magical that you don't know anything about the language, you don't know anything about you, but you know, people are trading with you, right? So the very unique skill, it was all of him, and a lot of people were, I still don't know what it is. I think the authenticity came in. So sometimes you've seen this, right? When you look at a salesperson, you're always, you have a guardsman. He's going to sell something to me and I'm going to negotiate. People get into it. But then sometimes you see an authentic person and you've already decided that you're going to buy from them. You're going to do business with them. Regardless of what happens, you already decided. So I think that's what now I'm understanding is that's probably what happened. You spent five minutes with him between his charisma and style and I think authenticity and being a farmer. People know him and say, okay, I'm going to do business with Mr. Ganesh. I, I don't know anything about what he's selling. Selling. But I'll buy no matter what. <laughs> and that's true. I don't know what you're talking about, but I'll, I'll buy too, right? But you had to... Two very strong influences going on at the same time. Granddad and a dad who was just an amazing extrovert because I'm just trying to visualize going into Punjab, getting invited to places, and he's taking you to different places. Did you enjoy those experiences going with him? Yes. Just first of all, seeing seeing India was just beautiful. Seeing those places was beautiful. And then, you know, this thing about Language is not such a big barrier at all that, that we make it out to be. I, I grew up in, in Tamil Nadu thinking we have 250 languages or so in, in, in India. We argue about how many languages we have. And if you don't speak the right dialect the right way and so on, you're an enemy of mine. I mean, that's, that's how we grow. Then you go into these places without knowing anything and people, the, the guy in Ambala in Punjab, he took my dad to see his dad in a village and they were talking about the right way to grow wheat. Right? And my dad was telling him how he should do it and what he should do and so on. And both spoke nothing. That guy spoke not, no English. My dad spoke no Hindi, no Punjabi, nothing. And I'm thinking, what are you guys? At half an hour, you heated discussion about how to grow wheat, right? So it's a, it's a skill. It's an art. And I think the farm mentality, the farmers are super smart. We think of farmers as you know pretty dumb, stupid, and so on. We have a 
Farmers are super smart because if you don't do the math in your head, you're going to lose the whole crop, right? You need to know exactly what you're going to sell, what for. And then hard work, the ethics. I actually tell people it's very difficult to match my work ethics. And mine is nothing compared to my dad's. And it's just like 24, 25 by 7 is, is okay, right? <laughs> but you consider yourself a farmer at heart. I am very much a farmer. The value system, what I like about the village, the familiness and the give backs. There are times when there are a lot of people in our farm who did not have food that day, right? So, so what we would have is the community would cook and they would cook and serve in the temples or other places. And even we had to, even the people who had the money to have food had to stand in line and get the food in a community shelter in a temple. So the value system that it brings is you don't do charity loudly. Right? You have to do it as a community and everybody in the community is your brother. That kind of a mentality is in me from that village mindset. And I always want to prove something to the city boys. Even though I'm a city boy, I hate city boys and I want to prove something to the city boys. <laughs> Chen- Chennai actually is a pretty big city, but anyway, we want... City, but I want to show the city boys, hey, dude, I'm not a dumb farmer. Some- somehow... That is ingrained in, in us, in a lot of us. That is ingrained in us. Like my Chennai friends who would listen to it will say, what farmer? You're a Chennai kid all along. You can... So let's talk a little bit about Chennai. So when you were in Chennai, uh, which school were you going to? So I went to a school called Vidya Mandir. It's not very well known. I had about 35 people in my grade, not a big one. I'm in touch with about 30 of them or, or 29 of them still. A WhatsApp group or something like that? Every one of them are super successful. And we thought all of them are idiots. I knew them from lower kindergartens. I still think of them as idiots, but they are hugely successful. CFO of large car companies in India. One is a CEO of a large company here in the US. And several of them are ambassadors and so on. I don't want to embarrass them, but they were sick. Every one of them has been hugely successful. And I grew with them through all the way through high school and the school. And, and we were fortunate in the school that we had teachers at that time who were Ladies, women who were housewives, but they didn't want to be just doing housewives. They wanted to work. So they volunteered. A lot of them volunteered to teach. They were extremely knowledgeable. Their English teacher was fabulous. The history teacher, they never taught anything from the syllabus. They never taught what was you required. They always, if you talk about history, this lady would start from Sumerians, or civilization, Assyrians, and Macedonians, and whatever. And I'm thinking, that is not in the exam. I don't really want to know. I just want to know about the British Empire, Mughals get my grades and get the hell out of history. But it is at a young age, I'm so glad she taught me because even two months ago, I went through a trip uh, to Egypt with my daughter and we went to trace the path of Moses from Egypt all the way to Jordan. This imaginary, try to be an Indiana Jones in, on your own. And the, my daughter was quite surprised that I knew a lot about those things and their civilizations and so on. And it's not because I read anything. It's just that great education at that time got into it by osmosis. So good education, good school, good set of friends that we had. And I think... And you used to play cricket too, right? So tell what position were you playing? We want to hear that. Yeah, I was an all-rounder, but I would. I used to be a fast bowler till I found that I, I was lazy. So I started bowling spin off spinner. And then I used to play middle order, like a four down or five down, depending on. So I'm obviously like the crisis man. If the team falls apart, then you need a crisis man. I, I used to play a lot of tennis, but then I found that cricket was more a team sport, right? right? And tennis, if I win, then I couldn't really celebrate with the pe- person I beat because the guy doesn't want to talk to you. 
and vice versa. So if I lose, I'm not going to have a cup of tea with the guy. I'm just going to go home and, and sulk, right? Whereas cricket was so much fun. We had so much fun when we lost the, the whole team that we worked. So we, I played for school. I played for universities. And I played for, a, in Chennai, we had leagues. So I played for minor leagues. And the minor leagues people would every once in a while play against the test winners, like the street and so on. So it's awesome that you'll get for the top players every once in a while. And we always had such chip on our shoulders to prove that we were better than those guys. And we just didn't have the opportunity. So we played a lot of cricket, but I think cricket pretty much taught me more about the joys of teamwork. I think they selected me not because I was an outstanding bowler or a batsman, but they would think you were the life of the team. We can't have a team without him because you'd be doing something. You'd either field, take a catch, take a wicket, do something. So being a team player and, and being a part of the team in tech, that I loved about cricket. And then again, all those cricketers that I played with, I'm on another WhatsApp group right now. Oh my gosh. Why do you think Facebook has the largest number of users in India, man? It's because of folks like you and me. <laughs> so you are in a group with the cricket folks too? With the cricket folks I played cricket with. And some of these cricket folks are in, in huge positions now. These guys, one of the guys has helped build the Olympics. He, he is one of the key guys who brought Olympics into LA. I won't name him again. He runs one of the major leagues in IPL, but he's an idiot. And he would think of me as an idiot. We, that's how we are with each other because we know him from a long time ago. So that group is pretty tight. I think those are the, the Vidya Mandir, the school team and the, in the yeah. cricket team are not the same. There's no overlaps. It's a different team, but those are the good groups I still have. A lot of the friends I still have. And the friends keep you humble, right? If they see this podcast, I hope they don't comment here. I hope they send the comment directly to me because they will come back and take you to pieces, right? And say, you're nothing. Let me do a podcast and you show how much of it. So I like that because we cut each other down to size and then you just come back to your basics and say, dude, I was also very lucky. So don't keep, don't get on a high horse and talk about your formula for success because you were just lucky also. Yeah. Bask, you obviously have done a lot of work on leadership. Do you think it's valuable to play in team sports when you're growing up? I, I honestly believe that there's a lot of life lessons to be learned. I think I've learned a lot from losing. We had the most lessons See, something in leadership, they say, you fight to win, kill. Somebody said there's no such thing as winning and losing. Winning is everything or something like that, right? No, sorry. Winning is not everything. Winning is the only thing. Those kind of things, if you translate that into corporate world and other leadership, it just creates a, a loner mentality. And there's one person cannot really invent the internet, although people claim they do, right? So it takes always a team. I think two things it's important. One is to teach you how to behave and you're not necessarily the best player or the smartest man in the room, but you can still be an integral part of a team and not feel left out. How to lose and then learn from that and win because without losing, you really can't win. And the third thing is, I think, teaches some kind of, to me, I would say humility. That's a goal beyond your personal goal. So I'm sure a lot of you've seen the Cricket World Cups and you've seen the 11th men and 12th men. They are cheering more and they are seem to be more happy than the people who actually won the game. Right. And that's the nice thing about team spirit is you could be a reserve player sitting on the sideline and you feel as happy or delighted, in fact, more. I don't think that happens in any individual sports. I think it's good. But I found individual sports where, to me, there are some people who are meant for individual sports. To me, individual sports was that competitiveness created an unhealthy relationship, right, is what I found. Oh, that's a very good point. Bask, we've spoken about granddad, we've spoken about dad. What about mom? 
I, it's funny, I never talked about mom. She's from the village, young lady, got married very, at a very young age, and she had me. So we were, in fact, she says we compete with each other because she's not much older than me because we, she had me at a very young age and a lot of common sense. So the things, my, my dad would have taught me facts and data, logic, business, hard-nosedness. I think the values that my mom taught was probably more useful for me. The, the first is she's extremely intuitive. And as a scientist and engineer, I, I always thought intuition was a thing for weak people. There's no such thing as intuition. I find out I'm very highly intuitive, but I've suppressed it. Okay. What do you mean by that? Can you explain that to our viewers? I would see somebody and I would definitely get the vibes on, is this going to happen or not happen a lot of times? And then I'll say, why? what are the pros and cons? What do I like about Sanjay? What do I not like? And then try to rationalize my instinctness and come to an answer. Uh, and I found that you need to respect your instinctness. And I'll give you a better example. So if I buy a car or buy tires from a car, let's pick something simple. You go to tirerock.com, find the tires you want, you go to other places. I'm very analytical and say, what tires do I need? Do I go on snow or not on snow? Blah, blah, blah. And I spend hours agonizing over data and where should I get it? Should I get it installed or not installed? And then what happens? You get a snowstorm and you said, I'm just going to go to the local guy and, and take whatever tires he puts you because you, you spend so much time analyzing and not making a decision. But I look at the biggest decisions in my life I have, and it has happened on intuition. Like I didn't have a pros and cons. Hopefully my wife won't listen to it. I didn't have a spreadsheet on her to say, you, you found somebody in, in Florida when I came here and I, cool, she'll get married. But the best decision in my life when I was very young. So that was just pure instinct. Most of the jobs I've taken are because I've talked, somebody asked me to come home and work for them, and I know them before or something and, and on a whim, having children. So I, I said, wow, a lot of big decisions that I've done have not been facts and data. And so why do I distrust my stuff? Self, right? So as I get older, I'm thinking, okay, I'm, I am clearly getting a feel on what's going to happen. And so she was highly intuitive, very highly intuitive. She would she would arrive at conclusions that would drive my dad insane, and she would be right, but it'll drive him insane because he was saying that makes no logical sense, right? That, that used to be a frustration. Second thing is, you know, we grew up middle class, and I think I owe my health to my mom. I got good food. She didn't know it was organic. She just knew what is good for you, right? So that's that. Then my taste in music. My dad was so practical. If music... If you can make money with music, then you should learn music. Otherwise, go to farm, right? It's like, don't waste your time on cricket, no cricket, no music, nothing. It's all illogical things to do. So, but I remember my mom and I, when we listen to music together, whatever music is, we will be in tears. And she still tears up when she listens to good music. So I'm so glad I got that from her because that has been a stress relief. So when you do all this, Something like music, you know, I'm not a great player, but I could play the 15 minutes I play or listen, my stress is zero, right? So uh, I am appreciating her a lot more and I talk a lot more about her, but she has been with me and a big part of me, so I don't see the value. My grandfather and father have passed, so you probably see you've analyzed it. But recently I was thinking and said, oh, I don't talk much about her, but I, th I think all my health, also attitude, because she was an extremely positive person. So I even joke that people ask me, why are you positive all the time? And what gets you down? Very few gets me down. 
And I joke and say, I think she, my mom was on Xanax when she had me because, <laughs> you know, she's never down and I'm never down. So some of it is either genetically or some of it is, I think, watching her. And she had no time for sulking. So I've gone, lost the tennis match or something, gone home, sulk. That's the only time she'll get angry with me is sulking. She hated sulking. So if your mom doesn't like you sulking, you don't want to sulk with anybody, right? I, that was a clear lesson for me is nobody likes sulking. <laughs> so suck it up and grow. And uh, the other thing is she did not like, unlike most Indian Asian parents, my mom did not like me studying all the time. She did not. You see, thinks you're too smart for this. Why are you studying for four hours? So you should be able to leave. So she was discouraging me to study for finals and so on. So if I study for a long time, she would think something is wrong with you. Why does it take so long for you to, to do this? So Two things happened is one is I learned to study fast because she would not let me study. So you learn very fast. And second is go outdoor, play, do the tennis and other kind of stuff that she did. So a lot of good things I, I haven't given her credit uh, that I'm realizing now, right? Yeah, because probably dad was out quite a bit and you probably spent a lot more time with mom too, right? Obviously. Yeah, that's, that's how it is. I, went, I was with him when I was doing the business when I could, but when I was school coming back and so on, she was there. And I also have a sister who's eight years younger than me. So I treated her like, I still treat her like my kid sister, but she has gotten the traits of my dad a lot. So I call her, as you would know, a karma yogi. She always has duties to do, taking care of mom and dad and me and everybody else. That's how she's made. She's a wonderful lady and she's a teacher, but she's got a lot of my dad's qualities. And, and, and I think I have gotten a lot of my mom's qualities and we haven't appreciated each other. That's true. That is true. So now Vidya Mandir is going on. And then what happens? You get to what, 11th and 12th grade? Yeah, I, I 12th, I did it in a, in, a, in a college. We had to do an intermediate one year pre-university. I did that in a college very close to Vidya Mandir called Vivekananda. It's a, it's a foundation college and not much. It's a good school, but one year I hardly you know, made friends and things there. I didn't have the foresight to go outside of Chennai. I, I was looking for colleges within Chennai. I got not the ones, I, I, everybody wants to get electrical engineering and IIT. I, I did not get that one. So I revolted. I, I think I got ceramics engineering, something like that. And I said, I'm not going to do all that nonsense. In hindsight, you could have done that. Nothing wrong. So I went into a college called Anamal University, which is 100 miles, 150 miles south of Chennai. I had to go stay in a hostel. Again, very formative for me. When you grew up in the village in Chennai, protected in a middle-class family, you're not a tough person. You think you're a tough, you're not a tough person. When you go to a college like that, where there are real thugs studying with you, and you're in a hostile situation where it bikes all the time, they all looked at you as, depending on, you look at you as a city kid or a village kid, and you got beaten up either way, right? So you learn to tough it up. You have to fight back and swear with the best of them and so on. But how was that experience for you? It was uh, initially terrible. It, it is like going in the middle of, th at, at that time, hopefully the reputation has changed now, but at that time it was like going in the middle of uh, a, a thug village, <laughs> right? Did you want to go ba run back home? Yeah, yeah, I do want to come back, but there's really no option. So you have to stay back and... And you were staying in the dorm there? I'm staying in the dorms. I made enough friends too, so we could go rent a house because the dorm life was really not fun at all. But still, you got your share of what they call ragging and other kind of stuff. But more importantly, everything was a challenge. So just going in back and forth was a challenge. 
And the school was on strike a lot of times, so we, we couldn't go finish our degrees. And so, again, I, it turns out that's probably the best experience for me because the ability to push back and not cow down. We find in corporate and business, there are a lot of bullies. You don't talk much about it. There's no books written about it. But there are a lot of guys who are bullies. And that school taught me how to deal, deal with bullies. You have to give it back to them. The, the tendency for a lot of us is to try to get out of the way, non-confrontational, whatever. But the bully, that just encourages bullies. You don't have to go hit him. And in the college, you have to get ready to hit him. But in, in business terms, you got to say, hey, wait a minute. That's not going to work. You have to stand up. This doesn't wait. You can't push me over. And the other thing is also, you have to be willing to put your job on the line. A lot of people are so afraid to put the job on the line. But if it's your ethically right, morally right, integrity is right. You should be able to say, this is the right call, and I don't care if you sack me. This is what I'm going to do. And thankfully for me, nobody has sacked me for someone's age you did. And, but I, nobody teaches you how to stand up for bullying, and nobody believes there's bullying. And there's mental bullying that goes on in these companies. And there's passive aggressiveness, especially in tech world, there's a lot of passive aggressiveness. People don't tell you on your face that they don't like you, whatever, but they kind of work. So how to confront that and do all that, I had to learn. The college was very good. Very good. Were there people mainly from Chennai and area or outside? Of- they were from other villages. There were people from Andaman, Nicobar, other states. So that was that your first? Well, no, you were traveling. So that was not your first experience of dealing with people from outside, right? No, I dealt up with them. Actually, a lot of them became my friends because I was one of the guys who had at least gone to other places so I could relate to a lot of these folks, right? And, and I realized some of the bullies are, are actually more threatened and lonely because they were in a strange place themselves, right? But they toughen it out. So after the first, second year or so, I had a blast. I was like, I knew the place. You established your bases, you made your friends. So now maybe you are dishing it out to some of them. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's, it's more, no, I wasn't. I think. Just kidding, Bas. You have learned some lessons to say something is right, wrong is wrong. And don't dish it out. But you should ask my other people and say, you know, how is this guy? <laughs> maybe they have said this guy was a terror, right? He was the. So is there a WhatsApp group of Anamalai too? Not much. I have I have a very small group somehow. The, the cricket guys who we played university cricket, I have a team of that. But somehow, I think we've gone, all of us have gone so many different directions. And I think the friends you form early in high school and in those kind of ages kind of stick. So Anamalai, there was not that great a bond. that Every once in a while, I run to somebody. And also, Beaver, this is why I was able to run my business in Bangalore. People said, how did you do it when you're studying engineering? The school was closed a lot of times with strikes and so on, right? So we had to study on our own, pass the exams. And so a lot of time on your hands. So my dad said, go run this business there. So you started something in Bangalore while you were studying in? When I was studying, I started something in Bangalore. So I started the appliances business for my dad for the Bangalore. You started a storefront? What was it? A storefront, retail storefront in Bangalore. And how was that along with your studies? So yeah, it was good. I found that I'm a jack of all trades and master of none. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, but I found that, you know, my skill is an all-rounder, all-round cricketer, all-round jack of all trades. And that keeps me more motivated rather than being a specialist and expert in one. How do you be around it? So my goal has always been, you have limited time in this world. You got to learn five sports and five instruments and 10 different things, work in 30 countries rather than that kind of focus. So I actually found it relaxing that you could do the studies and then at the break, you can go and do that in the Bangalore. And I realized I was very good at business. I actually made a lot of money 
when I was very young, selling refrigerators, air conditioners, and did air conditioning for a lot of big firms. And I didn't know much about air conditioning for you know uh, commercial. Then I wanted to sell computers. So I, we had this PDP-11, oh, PDP-11s, HCL-type computers and at the beginning. So actually, one of my clients wanted me to sell them a computer. I actually figured out how to export, do all this, and, and sell. But I lost a lot of my money doing that because I didn't know that business. So what, you were assembling these computers? You get a knockdown parts, assembling a mid-range computer, selling it to them. And what happened is, when you do it, I did that with the, with the refrigerator. So you could sell it and it'll run at least for a, a you know, year or so till the warranty, and then you can start services. This computer, when you sell them, the first day somebody will call and say, hey, it's not booting up. Or I don't know how to log on. I don't know how to do it. And I didn't realize that in computers, you can sell a defective product and still charge money. For it. You call it services, you call it consulting, you call it software. You know, if you did that in a refrigerator and you say next day it doesn't work, you'll be out of business. So I didn't have the smarts to do computing business. And I think that's the time I thought and said, I have to go to the US. That's the only place to get educated. So I wanted to get educated in computer science to come back and sell computers. That was my basic idea in coming to the US. Is That was the thing that you wanted to sell computers. So you said, let me learn. And the be- where is the best place to learn is the is the United States. Did you know somebody in the United States, or how did you get inspired? Just oh yeah, it's really stupid. I don't think this is. You may want to cut this out. Most of my friends were applying to Stanford, Berkeley. They knew about these research and and so on. So a couple of them, certain applications that you they received, they didn't apply, saying this is not good enough for me. So one of them, and I looked at this and find out the application. Most of them requires an application fee. And, and I said, I'm not going to pay $15, $20 for an application for something I may not get. Right. So I took one of the schools that somebody had, uh, the application they had rejected, is what I used to apply. And I found that they had no fee and I applied to Florida Tech, right? This is not the way I would tell people to do it. The other reason is also when I look at the brochures, most of them talked about their education. And Florida Tech had pictures of two babes in bikinis surfing on Melbourne Beach. And I looked and said, and they had a tagline, I remember, right? It's something like when other people put more education in your life, we put more life in your education. Sold. You said sold. Sold. This is the, so just one app. I don't know how I got it. When I came to Florida, the, to cut the long story short, was this school was near Cape Canaveral in Melbourne. It's still there. And most of my instructors were from NASA. They were all adjunct professors from Cape Canaveral. And they were all taking like a dollar, two dollars, whatever it is, because they like to give back. And I probably got the best education in computer science over any institution. And, and it, was, it was sheer luck, right? So my, my professors were all putting people on the moon and, and so on. And they were, so they would take all my syllabus that I had and say, this is useless. If you want an operating system, here's a manual on the back of the MS or whatever. And this is, you're going to learn this. You're going to see how this works. So, and the internship and things that they gave. And so it, it was just unbelievable education. I, if I look back and said, I learned more about computer science. M- most of the other universities, math professors were teaching computer science. So they thought it was math, discrete math and all that kind of stuff. These guys were actually, my projects were not writing hello world. They'll tell me something like, you need to write a program that I'm going to use to move the solar panel on a shuttle to face the sun, right? 
So I'm thinking, how do I do that? I don't even know the basics of programming. How do how am I going to do this and learn? So it was a scramble. And I think I came to the U.S. thinking I was the brightest guy in the planet. And with a month or so, I realized I was the stupidest guy on the planet, like dramatically when you started working with the NASA scientists. So it turned out to be a great uh, education accidentally. So now, is it an accident or intuition? I don't know what that is. Is it accident? Is it luck or intuition? Basque? Because a lot of our guests talk about these things. I wanted your perspective. There is luck, but it's not all luck, right? So there are a lot of people who have gone to Anamalai and a lot of them are successful. A lot of them turned out to be thugs or perhaps, right? A lot of them didn't say, here's a lesson learned, here's what to do. A lot of them have gone to FIT. It's called Florida Tech and they are probably successful or not. Uh, I think I think luck is a part, but when you get an opportunity, can you do the best? What can you do with an opportunity? I could tell the story on you know, I wish I'd gone to Stanford. I wish I'd gone to this school and I didn't get that. So I didn't get the education I want. In my mind, I said, wow, I'm so lucky that I didn't get into those schools because I got the best education possible and real life learning and, and so on. Plus, I met my girlfriend then. I met my girlfriend then and who's still my wife now in school. So you can't ask for more, right? So, so is that luck when there's a curve? How do you look at the most positive in that curve? And making the best of it is probably what I would say, is not worrying about what you missed. And, and this is where optimism helps is to say, oh, I got the best school. I got the best education. That kind of thinking helps. So, and then uh, you maybe trick yourself thinking you're lucky. That could be it, right? But we need humility. So there's, there's an element of luck. You know, I wouldn't dismiss it. Yeah. And maybe the weather was pretty similar to Chennai too. Weather was, that's another one. I looked at this, I don't have to buy any, these are stupid decisions you make, right? I don't have to buy any clothes. I can just wear the same jeans and t-shirt and go there. It's humid. Everybody was complaining about the weather. They still do. And I'm thinking, this is the best weather in the world. I don't know what. Absolutely. So you had a great educational, great time, met your wife there. So then when you graduated, what happened, Basque? Well, so when I was graduating, I had great internship in Cape Canaveral. So I had enough knowledge about, from not knowing much about programming, computers, so on, I had enough knowledge there. Not enough to go run my business. So I figured I'll try to get one job experience. At the same time, I also was getting serious with my girlfriend. So and she was she got a job in Bell Labs after graduation. She's a smarter one. That's the one you should be interviewing. But I'm not going to tell you now. She got into Bell Labs in New Jersey, got a great job at the same school. And then she was doing, she did extremely well in Bell Labs. So I had nobody that I knew anywhere to go stay. So I was driving, there's one friend in Chicago that I knew from my, my anomaly days. So I thought I'll go share with him to look for a job. So when I was driving over from uh, Florida, I got a one-way car, one-way rental car, and drove. And uh, on the way, applied, stopped in Indianapolis in a Dunkin' Donors and applied in a job that somebody wanted a computer automation guy. That's, I don't know, the title was something like a computer job. That's how I remember. Applied, went to Chicago, not thinking much about it. And I found a letter there saying, hey, <laughs> you applied for this job. Can you come for an interview? So I drove back from Chicago to this place called Burn, Indiana. Burn, Indiana is middle of nowhere. I was the only Indian who's ever gone there at that time. Probably still is. They've never seen people from out of state. They've never seen people from Ohio, leave alone from the country. So the guy, when I came there, 
They gave me the job. They said, here's a job. You're the computer guy. It's a factory that they're making resistant networks, and they needed some people to automate the factory floor. So I was probably the only crazy guy to take a job there, to apply, and but it was the best job again. I had a budget of, at that time, $30 million or something, because they were automating the entire factory floor. What was happening is most of the resistant network business was going to Singapore, because at that time, Singapore was a low cost. So they need to automate, otherwise they're dead. So they were doing this computer-integrated automation, and it was very high-tech, cutting-edge. Since I worked in Cape Canaveral, I knew how to do real-time programming, machine automation, what we call edge and IoT now. And 30 years ago, we didn't have a term for it. So I was the, again, I was the CIO, programmer, database guy, hardware guy, network guy, running the cables. So I could say that for five years, I lived there and I did every job in IT. Because they, they didn't even have, we didn't know how to, to say you're a database guy, a programmer guy. The, the project would be, can you automate this robot, a rack handler, so it picks up these things and put it there. And so what computers to buy, what cables to run, how do you run networking, it's all yours. And there's no internet. So I did hardware, software, database, network, cable running, programming, support, customer call, help desk, whatever you want, right? I think, again, greatest education because there's no place to call help. Typically, what will happen is a 24 by 7 factory. So in the middle of the night, I was young, so I would be in a bar. I get a call in the bar, page in the bar, and you have to call back and they'll say, hey, this robot has gone crazy. You need to be fixing it right now. So, you know, so 24 by 7, you are on call and then you have to drive back or if you're too drunk, you have to, I had a, a terminal in my back of my car. I had to plug it in, take, un unplug a fax machine in the bar, log it in and fix it and so on. So great experience, again, very hands-on, very technical, and, and also lifestyle. You know, most Indians who come here go to the East Coast or West Coast, and that is not really Americana, right? That's not true America, and, the, you know, and it, it's great places, but you don't really learn much about how America works. I lived in the middle of nowhere, and the first three months was tough, but after that, it was so much fun because you have to be integrated, Mennonites and Amish and other kind of communities you have to integrate with them. I had a blast. I actually enjoyed it a lot. And I was a novelty for them and everything was learning for me. So so five years I spent doing every job in IT. But that was a probably a foundational period for you, boss. The Florida was a foundational. This was from a hands-on because this was hardcore hands-on. Yeah, very hands-on. Every line of code you had to write, every line of administration you had to run, every computers you installed yourself, I opened it from, there were a few other people, but we had to open it from from boxes and install and do all this. The graphics processors, the mem memory adapters, everything. In fact, these days, sometimes when I have a problem, I tell them, okay, don't wait for the EMC support or somebody to come. We'll just change the processor. And the guy says, Bass, you know, our warranty would go. You can't touch it. You can't open the computer and say, screw that. We can't have support down. So they have to pull me back and say, don't do something that we can't recover. But you, you have to do it. You, you have to. So I always tell people, I didn't know much about static electricity. They never teach you that in school. And Indiana is hot when you have the heater running inside all the time. And I felt I, a lot of boards were failing. And I was just assumed that Digital Equipment Corporation make poor boards, right? Because I'm changing the driver board, it'll fail and then put another one straight. And after a few times, I found out a spark was going from my hand, right? And, oh, there's a coincidence. Something has happened. I get a spark and the torch fails. 
And then I didn't tell anybody, obviously, because I said, oh my God, but nobody taught me, and, but nobody knew enough to know that could be the reason for the failure. So you made some really stupid mistakes to, I put a firefighter to your boards because you're putting it in and out till you learn how to ground yourself, all that other stuff. So great learning and gives you a confidence because after a while, then you do any job, you, you could relate to anybody in IT. I may not be as good as them in programming, not as good as them as a system that, but I could talk to the guy and say, listen, dude, I've done systems ad. And that camaraderie that comes in with people saying that he knows what he's talking about, even though he's a business guy, is a, is a good one. So five, five years was just 24 by seven I was working. So it could be 10 years if you add them out an hour. So that was Indiana. And so I have a lot of Indiana stories, but I really understand the American politics a little bit better. And a lot of people get frustrated that why is it going this way and so on. And I feel like, oh, I've been to places where people have been disenfranchised and I know why did nothing wrong, great people. So good life lesson. But we got serious with my wife and my girlfriend at that time. And she said, I'm not coming to Indiana. She came once and she said, oh, this is all cornfields and horses and I'm not coming there. She was a city girl and she was in, not the New Jersey was a big city, but it was definitely a bigger city than where I, state than where I was. So I had an ultimatum, if you want to get serious, to move to New Jersey. So I quit that and moved to New Jersey. And then I found jobs with Johnson and Glaxo. So on the journey began. And, but I felt like when I joined those jobs, uh, I joined with a, re a real practical business experience, education, but more importantly, hands-on, have done. So I could be, a, again, an all-rounder, if you will. And then the journey moved towards what is now Basque Mind. And from a technology standpoint, you've been you know, at the top or the peak, whatever you call it, that's CIO levels of some very large companies. So you just decided that now let me just work with maybe the entrepreneurial kinds. What was the thought behind that? Yeah, so I spent the last... Uh third of my, I mean, spend a third in manufacturing, Honeywell, so on, a third in pharmaceuticals, healthcare, consumer. Well, my heart was on Silicon Valley. So I spent the last uh, third of my career in Silicon Valley with, with all the companies. So I found that the most exciting for some guy with computer science knowledge and so on. When I was the CIO of VMware, I also had the opportunity. I think Michael Dell had bought EMC, which owned VMware. So in a way, it was a father company or sister company. So Michael had asked me to be the CIO of Dell as well. So for a period of time, I was the CIO of Dell and VMware together. At that time, I was thinking, I really enjoy, I like doing two things or three things. That's been my life is instead of one year, I like to do two things. It might find my mind relaxing. And Dell culture was cost, supply chain, hardcore, similar to my Honeywell business. And VMware is all growth and employee productivity and innovation and so on, right? So I like the contrast with two different boards, two different leadership. So I said, well, it'd be nice to work on several companies like this rather than going in one company. And then I started advising a lot of companies, Zoom, Cohesity, ThoughtSpot, Automation, a lot of these companies who were you know, really growing up and so on. And I, what I found is I found that very valuable because when they are growing and at that stage, they actually want to input. When they grow very big, they don't need We're one con, but when you're growing, they want the input. Really like that, but you work in several companies. But if you work for a company like Dell and VMware, you have conflict of interest, right? There's certain, I can get on every board. I cannot get on every advisory. 
So I, somewhere along the line, I said, well, this is something I enjoy doing more, but I can do on my own and advise 100 companies, 20 companies in one. And then COVID clearly gave an opportunity where all of a sudden figured you can work from anywhere all of a sudden. You don't need an infrastructure and whatever to do. So, and then Zoom took off. I, I think financially I was well set with all these things that, you know, it was not as desperate as it was when I first landed in Florida. So I spawned my own to say, let me continue full-time on advising both tech companies who are growing. And then a lot of uh, non-tech companies have a struggle bridging to Silicon Valley, right? Every talk is about, when you talk about AI, generative AI, should I use ChatGPT, blah, blah, blah. That's not how businessmen are thinking. You know, they are thinking there's some tech, but I have to automate my supply chain or I have to get better than my competition and I'm spending too much money on uh, on customer service. Can I get better? And when you talk to the either the consultants or technical people, they go into Kubernetes and this and that and everything else that a CEO doesn't really want. They want somebody to advise them on what are the practical things, my business problems, what are the practical things I do, who should I work with and how would I go? And also what talent, how can I get the talent? I can't, I don't want to go into something that I go and then compete. I'm in Bern, Indiana, and I'm, I want to hire AI people who are looking for jobs with Zoom or some other companies. You know, So each company has to have a strategy on policies, practically. So I felt like with my all-round background on East Coast, West Coast, manufacturing, other pharmaceutical and tech companies, you can be a bridge. So that's kind of how I started. I work with tech companies. And then I find it satisfying at a stage where is very creative for me. I'm not spending as much time on operations like I did before, but more time on creative pursuits. That's great. That's great. Bask, we talk a lot about the role of mentors on this show. Have you had some mentors besides, obviously, I, I can rattle off a, a few, granddad, dad, mom. Besides that, any mentors along the way in your career? So that's one of the mistakes I've made is I haven't had a formal mentor but, you know, and in Mahabharata, there's a story of a guy called Ekalaiba who, who just adopted Drona to be a mentor. And so I have adopted a few people as my mentors, subconsciously or consciously. So other than my family, there were people, you know, what is this? When I worked in Honeywell, I didn't know what a CIO was. I was doing digital transformation. And there was a CIO, Larry, I worked with a lot and learned a lot about how to deal with vendors CI, how to deal with CEOs. You need to understand how to deal with CEOs, board, and audit, and committee, and so on. So there were informal mentors like that I've done. I've, I've learned a lot more from younger entrepreneurs. You know, So now I realize when I look at all the guys in Silicon Valley, my God, these guys, in a way, are a lot braver and fearless than I was. And I thought I was pretty fearless. And and so I tend to look at, I don't have these things. I don't have the background of these things logically. And these guys come, I know everything in good and bad, right? In a way that they, a lot of them have an idea of a product, don't know how a company's work, don't know how a customer works or supply chain or operations, but they go into it, right? So I think, so, so there are some mentors I've had from some of the peak companies I advised on how to make these bold calls, et cetera. Nowadays, these mentors are my children the next generation. I, I know, so I do a lot of things called, I do a lot of mentoring. And every mentoring session, I've learned more, I, I believe, than the mentees. And especially with people who are different than me, if it's, if it's an underprivileged community that I work with, I feel like how privileged you are and your motivation to work harder. Then I work a lot with Gen Z, and now my mentors are probably my children. And, and they seem to think a lot clearer than our generation does on 
what a career is, what is life, value of money, balances. I'm thinking, wow, I, I was skewed. My I, The only way I kept scores was job, career, making money. That's a terrible way to run life. <laughs> so I think now my mentors are, how do you get maximized on life beyond just making, what is your idea of success? So, but you to answer your questions, think, I think a formal mentor is extremely valuable. And I always tell people, there are always people who do free mentorship, right? I've said done free mentorship for people. Somewhat valuable, not really good. It, it's like if you, I've gone to the, I, I do go to the gym. I found that if I had, if I pay money to a physical trainer, I'm a lot fitter than me doing it. I know what to do, but so I think I'm doing the push, uh, pull-ups and push-ups and so on, but apparently I'm not doing it well and not motivated. So I actually recommend the C-levels, especially at that stage, to say, now you're playing Wimbledon. You're not playing some tennis. That you can have informal mentors. Try to get a mentor, a coach who has actually been there at a C-level and done this. Pay the money because then you have some skin in the game and that person has some skin in the game. Even if they don't want the money, pay them so that you, you can keep a good appointment and then you're forced to learn because I wish I had the discipline. I had to get bits and pieces. And I made a lot of mistakes and you fall. And that's not the analogy I can give is I've been playing guitar for a long time, never gone to a lesson, self-taught. So I make the same mistakes I made when I first bought the guitar. And my son, I put a gun to his head in a bit. And when he wanted to play guitar, I said, take some lessons and take some things, right? So he can play better than me. And this kid has played a lot less than I have. So my technique is wrong. Approach is wrong. So I just found like, now mentorship is important. But don't take a mentor that your HR person gives you. Or There's no coach. You can't be a general coach. The question to ask is, have you been at a C-level? Have you played the Wimbledon? If not, that's not the coach I need at this stage. Right? What can you tell me about things I can't read in a book? And at this situation, what do I do? So a lot more strongly now, but I didn't realize that was probably something I should have done. But those are great insights. Find somebody who's played in the Wimbledon, you know, who's been in a C-level, but also pay them. That's something we've not heard mentioned by the many folks that you have. So that's a, a very, very valuable point. And also... The other thing you said, which is also pretty striking, is the next generation can be the mentors too. It doesn't always have to be the gray-haired person in the room. It can be, like you said, your children or even the Gen Z entrepreneurs, etc. So great points. Uh, Bask, you have obviously from Anamal to Florida to all this, you achieved and come a long way. But I see there's a long, big innings, to use the cricket terminology, still there. Where do you see your journey going from here? Yeah, I think it's twofold now. I think one is all the profits from Basque Mine. My, I employ people, so I have to pay them and do all that, that expenses. But my profits and whatever I do, I do it as a foundation. So think of it as a non, I think of it as Robin Hood, right? I tried to just help with foundations and found that I had no skills to help with foundations. I don't know how to make soup. I don't know how to build a house. I, I don't know how to go to Africa or India and do all that but I can give money, right? So I mean, I know how to make money. So one of the things is, how do you get into foundation with, with the skills I know rather than with the skills I don't know, right? So that's one. And I think when you're young, you have to do that, right? You know, you can't wait till you have no energy. Second is spiritual quest. I've never really thought much about spiritual quest. Now I'm spending more time on what happens. What else do you do? Get, can you be a better version? And I'm not trying to become a saint, but I said, I want to be a better version of myself tomorrow. 
spiritually than, than what I am now, right? So that journey has started, at least the earning has started for me. On the business side, I think two things is, I feel like when I look at the growth of India, a lot, it has been, one is a lot of us came here. And in fact, when you were interviewing me, I said, I can't think of too many Indians who have come to the US and not be successful, right? There are so many people who have done well. So the special would be not talking about them because I, I can't think of people who are not there. And then India has been very successful with services, partly because some of us have helped, which is sometimes not recognized, but we have written purchase orders with the different service providers. And we've gone over and created the, the jobs in Bangalore and other places, but the, the Indian government and the Indians in growing up have done a lot. So the services industry is well-established and so on. And if you look at Silicon Valley, every new company, 80, 90% of them is formed by an Indian entrepreneur who is actually first-generation Indian. So the thing is, if you can mentor Indian entrepreneurs in Bangalore, in Mumbai, in Chennai, and whatever, and provide them with the ecosystem to get their connections and funding, other kind of stuff, they can be a lot more efficient. There's talent there. The people are there. You don't have to plant them from there to an uncomfortable location. They can always come here to learn, but you don't have to move. So I think the next one is creating actual products. You know, Why can't you create a Google? Sundar Pichai can do it here. Why can't we create a Google in India? Rather than they do do development product extension, but you know, have you, can you create a WhatsApp, a Zoom out of India? And what companies to bet on? So I'm looking a lot at mentorship and developing people and companies in India to actually form it there. Uh, and, and it's starting, but I think that's where my passion is. I've worked a lot in Silicon Valley, helped a lot of companies start things there. And some education on leadership too. The, the exposure, if I was in India, I wouldn't have gotten exposure to how to lead and all the other kind of stuff. So can you provide that mentorship and training for people directly there? If those are the goals, but currently there's still so much interest in every company, every board wants to know how to do digital transformation. Where do I get the people? How do I do this? It's, it's Silicon Valley is so insular. Most people have not left this place and they've not worked in any industry other than that. So people who have worked in multiple industries, multiple segments, multiple places, have a big role to bridge that. So I think immediate is there's still a lot of help to be done in both for tech companies and for other traditional companies to bridge that gap. But over the next few years, I think you'll be seeing more of me mentoring companies to do it out of India. So that's what I'm thinking. Wow. So there is the foundation side, the spiritual side, mentoring of entrepreneurs in India, plus currently obviously helping Silicon Valley get into other parts of the United States in many cases or other industries, which is surprising. Obviously, you'd never mention guitar, but I presume that's also in the future somewhere. I'm, I cannot. So this is the goal I have. I have my vision chart, which is so silly is I can play now songs, but I sing awfully bad. So with all the tech, with auto-tune, and so I'm going to find every software possible so I sound great. So that's a goal for me is what I cannot make up by talent, I'm going to make it up with software. So I'm looking at every cheating software to make <laughs> too. There's And there's plenty of that out there, boss. Believe me, there's plenty of that make you sound like manhole and don't worry. That's exactly, that's, that is my next thing is, man, you know, I've given up on trying to be talented singing, but I'm going to get all the software help I can. It's like the Botox for singing. I want to do that. 
<laughs> That's true. That is true. We've taken you to the future. We're going to just take you for 30 seconds to the past. Just pretend that it's this is Basque, which is me, coming out of Anamalai. What would be the one or two things that you would say to Basque coming out of Anamalai, which is me? Yeah, one is I felt like one is whatever you're dreaming and thinking of is too small. So I felt like my dreams were too small. And so I think I would say dream big, really big. Because then if you get 80% of it, it's still a big dream. Especially now at that certain stages in India, it was to even be employed was a big deal. So that was a big dream to be successful. So I would dream really very big. And I find like a lot of people say specialization. Should I get into this? I find that broadening is very helpful. So I would say, learn everything, learn every industry. You have one life to live. So you don't want to be just one company, one founder, whatever, learn everything. The more broader you do, better. I would have done even more broader. And I worked roughly five years or so in companies and changed, not because I, because it happened to me. Uh, I would tell the new bass and say, five years is too much in a company. You stop learning. First year, you learn a lot. Second year, you learn something. Third year, you're useful to the company. From fourth year, the company is not useful to you in general because you start cruising. So <laughs> bad, at, but I, that I would give that to me to say, and that's something I learned from my uh, Gen Z folks to say, you don't want to be there for too long. You'd be a lifer for the company. So I think that would something is try to go broad because most people are trying to tell you to go specialize. You can, there are people who are cybersecurity experts, nothing wrong, or database experts. Try to be all of it, get a broad sense. And I think that helps a lot more leadership and bridging and so on, right? So that's something I'll do. And then friendship, the value of friendship. I'm so glad I kept them. That's my most precious resource after family, if you will, is, is the friends I have. And don't be transactional on friendship. So not normally people form contacts. And I have a large roller desk and people always want the roller desk. But my roller desk was not built for sales. My roller desk was built for friendship and relationship. So I don't like to trade that in. People always say, can you call so-and-so? Yeah, I know them very well, but I'm not going to call them for you and trade for her. So I would say build a non-transactional business relationship as well. And then... The last one is get some kind of balance. I was imbalanced on ambition. So we become in your blindly ambitious and you want to be the next and vice president, CIOs, all the other kind of stuff. I would get a little bit more balance on what do you want to get out of life generally, right? Spend more time on guitar. but Yeah, I would think so. But just chill to spend more time on guitar. I would say that. Yeah. So, but those are great life lessons. You said think big, be a generalist, friendships, not contacts or transactions, and a life balance. Those are very well said points. Baska, towards the end, we generally ask two questions of everybody and we're creating this cloud. So one is, what is your definition of Indianness? So let me think through this one. One is each one of us is an ambassador to what that concept and thing of India is. So we are the ambassadors for what people look at Indians, right? Especially when you're overseas. So I think you have to take it a little seriously. It's, so you are an ambassador. You're not appointed as an ambassador of India, but you are an ambassador of India. And so each interaction you have with everybody in the world is how they judge India. So it, I profited because the generation who came before me were super brilliant people, and they just assume I'm super brilliant. So I got the benefit of it. But you can now come back and say, you're just more than just brilliant, more collaborative. So you're a good person. 
you have a good spiritual person, what does that represent? I think part of is, that is, is really true. The second thing is, uh, since cricket, this is something I've been thinking about, is some of our generation has been a little colonial mindset. We've had that. It's tough, even though we were not that exposed to it. We were exposed to our grandfathers and fathers. So we need some appreciation from other people. And there's a little bit of uh, you know, that in us. Then the next generation, so that would be the Prasanna generation or generation or whatever. And then you have the Virat Kohli generation who come back and say, screw you, I'm better. I don't think that, that I think that's a lack of confidence as well, right? Because you're not really that better. When, when you say we are the greatest, which is what was just happening a little bit, I think that's a lack of confidence. Hopefully we get to a stage where you're okay, I'm okay. You have to appreciate that they're a NASA scientist and they're brilliant. And that doesn't make you a complete idiot either. So you can play with them and stay with them. So I think that is one thing about Indianness is as an ambassador, you, we got to get to an I'm okay, you're okay uh, kind of mentality rather than I'm better, which is, I feel like we are there now to say we're I'm better. And I think we have to get beyond that is what I would think. And the last thing is we are definitely known for success. That's good. We have to be known for giving. I think our tradition is there. If that's where the tradition has been there. And I think a lot of people, a lot of us, do it anonymously, so it's, I don't have to have it announced. But I think just that thing of service mindset, and not just in India, which is good to do, but to the local communities and so on, to develop that is probably. So three things, if I have to succinctly say it is, one is this, I'm okay, you're okay. Second is a thing of giving. And then the second, the first most important thing is you're an ambassador. So it's a pretty serious responsibility. I wish I had known this. I've said things and done things that I probably shouldn't have. We all have. But that those are three good points. Final point, just one or two names, not your family, could be somebody from India or US or anywhere in the world, but a person of Indian origin who is living that inspires you. So I'll pick one from different categories. You know, there's a gentleman called Sri M, who's a spiritual leader, speaks English and so on, but he went to the Himalayas and everywhere else and now is coming back and spreading the knowledge. I mean, not all of us have the time to go to Himalayas or the ability to learn Sanskrit. So I think it's a good role model that I look to, to what the spiritualness of India and stuff is about. So that's a good role model. I think I, I have to pick a cricketer. I think that this generation of Virat Kohli, not the one from five years ago, is a good leader. I think he's, after becoming a father, he's a little bit more balanced. He knows he's great, but he doesn't have to show it every day. So I like this generation, the current Current version, the current version of Virat Kohli. And I think if you had a big, big a business leader, I, I do think uh, Satya is a, Satya Nadella is a good role model for us from a business standpoint. Is because Microsoft has always been successful, but when you talk to the people in Microsoft, they didn't want to work for that company. It was a terrible. And now I talk to the same people, and a lot of my friends are are there. They've gone from FIT and worked there. And I tell him, dude, join me. What the hell are you doing? You made more money than God. Why do you have a stick in Microsoft? Come and do the things you do with me. And they say, I would have done that, but Satya has come and changed the culture where it is where it's fun and good to work. So I think from that overall leadership and stock price is great, companies great, all that is fine. But actual people CSA that is a good guy, a good person to work for. So just randomly, those are the three from business, somebody spiritual, somebody, you know, where my mind is. And of course, cricket, 
I didn't like the previous incarnation of Virat. Everybody loved him, fiery, passionate, and show everybody. But I think the next version is, okay, you know, you're good, but you don't have to keep saying that to everybody. Actually, I would have thought you would have said Dhoni because of CSK. But anyway, I will let you go with Virat. But I mean, Dhoni and Rajalikanth, I left two people. I'm going to be ostracized right from like, Dhoni, you have to give me some notes. You can't just ask me these blind questions. But Rajni and Dhoni... You're going to get a lot of pushback from your friends. <laughs> but, anyway. but this has been great, uh, Basque. Really, thank you so much for sharing your journey. What an amazing journey. Very inspiring. So thank you for taking the time and being so open with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Indianist Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future inspirational stories. 